wonder if there's a little more pressure to record these well because we normally have quite a few people listen, but I know right now we, uh, our snowbirds will be online. And so uh, I want to thank them and let them know that we are praying for safe travels and we are slightly covetous about the warm weather they're probably experiencing. But at the same time, we thank them and everybody for contribution to this church. And being here on a Sunday morning, uh, listening to God's word on a Sunday morning is a fantastic way to start the week. And I'm not just saying that because I believe that I am good at delivering the message, but I believe that the message is good to hear. And it's very important to start a day and a week with the mindset of, of Christ. And so with that spirit in mind, I say happy day after Christmas and, and merry rest of the year. We opted last week to kind of celebrate Christmas just a week early because we knew we would have a lot of travelers. But at the same time, I thought it played very well into the message of the day after Christmas and how Christmas goes beyond the manger. And that's the title of this morning's message. So I say glory to God. I say heaven and earth celebrate the birth of the Messiah, the one who has come to be a light to the world, a hope for all people, a pathway to salvation, the new covenant that restores our relationship with our loving Heavenly Father. Now you've heard this cliche, right, that, that God works in mysterious ways, and he certainly does, and, and I think we could all nod and say he does. It's the way he works is, is amazing, and sometimes it, it just blows our minds. But I'm going to go as far as to say, and I'm going to say this with all reverence, that God works in ridiculous ways sometimes. So let me make my point. We know that God hears us when we pray, and we know that he has promised to work situations for his good, will, and purpose, and that benefits us. But think about some of the ways he went about it. I'm going to go back to a couple stories, maybe even from our Sunday school days, and I'm going to talk about Gideon. Now, in the First Testament book of Judges, we find the story of Gideon, and Gideon was at best a reluctant leader. We've read about the way he doubted that he was the one to be sent. In fact, when instructed to tear, he was instructed to tear down an altar to Baal. That's the, the people with, who people were worshiping at the time. And he was supposed to build one for God. And that really upset the people. And he knew that was going to happen. So he kind of snuck around and did this at night so no one would see. And then when God said, I'm going to send you, he kept using the words. And I'm, I'm, I'm quoting one of the paraphrases here. It says, just to be sure that he understood what God wanted him to do. He said, God, I'm the weakest member of the weakest clan. Are you sure you want me? I mean, that's ridiculous. God said, I want you. And so he said, okay, if you really want me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. And, and God met him there and said, yep, you're the one. He said, okay, okay, maybe I'm misunderstanding you. And, and so you have to remember that the Midianites were, were the ones that were keeping the, um, the Israelites hostage. They had, this is one of the times where they had been exiled from their own land. Um, and, and so they were kind of sneaking around because the Midianites would come and steal their food and their, their money and their possessions. So he was sneaking around and, and he was threshing wheat uh, in a wine press so that, that you know, no one would see that that's what they were doing and they were storing food. And, and while he was there, he said, God, if you really want me, I'm going to take this fleece and I'm going to lay it on the floor of this room here. What I'm going to do is in the morning, I'm going to come back and I want that fleece to be wet and everything else to be dry. Because that's a miracle. If you do that, then I know that I'm your guy. Comes back, and of course, God does exactly what he says. You see, you know what? I'm, he said, forgive me for asking again. I love how he says that. But he says, if it, you know, God, uh, just to be sure, I meant the fleece dry and the floor wet. And what happens exactly that? And he says, okay, all right, God. 
So, but I, so now, you know, here's this reluctant leader. He's negotiated and God says, okay, yeah, I've met it. No, no, go do what I'm asking. But in chapter seven of Judges, we find Gideon facing the army of the Midianites. And this is a formidable army. And, and Gideon knew it. But let's see what happens. I'm going to begin in verse two. It says, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. So he's saying, I'm going to send you Gideon, but if you take that many people, then they're just going to think it's because you. He goes, I want people to know that I am God and I did this. So he says, now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. Anybody who doesn't want to go face danger, doesn't want to be put in harm's way, go ahead and go home. It says, so 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. Okay, so now we, we lost a, a, a large portion of our army. Verse four says, but the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. And if he says, if I shall say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. This is his test. Let them all have a drink and watch how they drink. It says 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will go save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. Now imagine you're Gideon, all right? He's a reluctant leader, weakest of the weakest, formidable enemy. And God has just told you to send all but 300 of your 32,000 men home. All but 300. Send everybody else home. Talk about a test of faith, not only in God delivering them, but also in your understanding of God. You know, he's already proven that he's kind of like, God, is that what you really what you meant? Gideon is, after all, the one who wanted to be sure that God knew what he meant. What about Joshua at Jericho? We know the story as well. Moses had died, and God instructed Joshua to lead the Israelites across the Jordan River and into the land that had been promised to them. Now, Joshua had sent ahead a couple of spies and, and knew that the city of Jericho was well protected by a city wall and barred gates. As the men came to the edge of the Jordan River, they were, you know, and this river was swollen. This was at flood stage at this time. God told them to have the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant into the water, okay? So he says, take this, and I know this is all flooded and all this, but take this Ark, this thing, take it in front of you and just go stand in the water, and this is funny because God parted the waters. And we don't, a lot of people don't realize God parted the waters three times, three times the Bibles. The first one, we, we don't think of it that way, but he separated the earth from, from the water. Okay? He separated that and created land. The second was the one we always think of. They're being pursued by Pharaoh in the, out of Egypt, and he separated the waters, the Red Sea. Now he separates it a third time, the Jordan River. So he's done this. Now, the men were safely across and outside the walls of Jericho. So what happens now? So I'm going to look at Joshua 6, verse 1. It says, now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. So this is a fortified city. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its kings and its fighting men. And he's probably going, what? All we did was walk across water and we're looking out the outside of the city. But God says, verse three, march around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets and ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, the whole army will give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. Okay, God, what? 
<laughs> you want me to, to, to go to this barred city, this, this, this high walled city, and march around it for seven days, and at the end just scream at the walls? It's ridiculous. God is ridiculous. And speaking of arks, oh my gosh, Genesis 6 captures the story of Noah. The Bible speaks of how the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of a human heart was only evil all the time. That's Genesis 6, 5. It says, so God decided to destroy it all and start over. But verse 8 says that Noah, who he described as a righteous man, he says, had found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We know how the story goes but had you considered the ridiculous of the instruction to build an ark that is 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high? You have to think about that. I have a slide to help you think about that. That's the ark compared to a nuclear submarine, a football field, a house, a large aircraft. I mean, this is a big, big boat. Flip one more time. You can see it a little bit that way. That, and there's no water around, okay? You can go ahead and flip it again. Now, there's speculation whether the world ever seen rain before. There's, there's scriptures from Genesis 1 and the Hebrews that talk about whether there was no rain ever, no one had ever seen rain before, or they had. And that's inconsequential. This, the fact is, he's building this thing in his yard, okay? So this enormous boat in the middle of dry land would again seem like a ridiculous instruction from the Lord. But as, we, as was the case with Gideon and, and Joshua, this is what God's response to a cry from his people for deliverance. Lord, help us. Deliver us from the Midianites. Help us get into Jericho. Lord, save me from annihilation. Okay, right? God's people needed a rescuer. The world needed a savior. The world still does. We pray to God for deliverance from tough situations, right? Pandemics. We pray for protection from illness, from harm, blessings for ourselves and people we care about, and forgiveness for the sins that we continue to commit against God. We pray, God, help us. And God is all-powerful. He could do whatever he wants to accomplish his goodwill. He could destroy those that sin against him. Thank God he doesn't. He could send a majestic king, right, a powerful warrior, a, a strict dictator to come straighten us all out. Something grand and impressive, attention-grabbing and authoritative, right? But what does he do? He sends a baby, a baby, a child born of a human woman. That's ridiculous. That's not what we had in mind at all. But God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my, your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's from Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. The wisdom of Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, right? Surrender to him. Do as he says, do as he asks, and he will make your path straight. Or another translation says, he will direct your paths. Have you ever considered that when you don't believe that God can or will act, that you're expressing a lack of faith? Have you ever thought that when you worry about something, you're expressing a lack of faith? You're saying, God can't do this. God can't save me. God doesn't love me enough to do this. But don't try to impose your own limits of God and what God can do or, or try to make him so human that you no longer believe him as God. To us, the ways of God may seem strange, even foolish or ridiculous, but the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 1.25, it says, the foolishness of God, right? His, 
His foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. That's how far apart we are. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The story of Job, you know, some people reading it try to think it's a, you know, an uplifting story. And in some ways it is, but at first pass, it doesn't seem that way. And it's a very lengthy, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but, um, but it's a long kind of just, he's just kind of venting. I mean, and, 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 and at the very end, God finally speaks back to Job, okay? And there's this discourse going back and forth. And God just kind of lays into him and he says, I know this and I do this. Can you? And he says, Job, can you do this? Do you know this? Do you know why this happens? And, and it's really lengthy and he's proven the point. And Job submits and says, you're right. You're right. I don't understand. It's not mine to know. We have such a small piece of the big picture, usually just the piece that's right in front of us, or, or when we're being particularly selfish, although we don't like to call it that way, just the piece that affects us. That's all we have to look at. And we are limited by our own understanding. And even when we evoke our most awesome imagination of what God can and should do, right? And even when we evoke that, and, and um, God still knows, does, and commands more authority. Scripture says, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These words were spoken by the prophet Isaiah, who foretold of the birth of the Savior, and it was echoed in Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians. He knows exactly what you require, and he has all the wisdom and power necessary to bless you with what you need. You need a Savior, not a dictator. You need a teacher, not a commander. You need a hope, not a literal answer. You need Jesus. This morning's scripture, remember, was from Hebrews two sixteen through 17. It said, for surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. You see, God is El Shaddai. That's one of his names that talks about his character. El Shaddai, the the almighty, the all-sufficient. The might of God is surely enough to include the ability to come down to our level to relate to us, to communicate with us and to interact with us, to lead by example and cast a vision that we can understand, identify with, and pursue. So I want to take a moment, just revisit the nativity story from Luke 2, and we read it a lot this time of year. It says, and there are shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Then suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those to whom his favor rests. You know, I I heard one explanation of this being uh, about the manger. And we always see this wood trough, and that's how I certainly picture it. But one speculation is a, a, a manger actually in Bethlehem, a lot of them were made from stone. And what was laid in the manger often was was one of the purest lambs that was born because that would be the one they sacrificed. So they put it in the stone manger, which is safe and protected from everything else. And I don't know if, if that's true or not, but if that were to be true, then what an image for the shepherds. We're gonna find, you're gonna find this baby 
in this protective manger where the purest of pure, where the sacrificial is kept safe. Now Joshua marked in circles and blew trumpets to retake the promised land. And, and Gideon fought with 300 men that drank like dogs to protect God's people. And Noah built a big, big boat to survive total annihilation. And God sent a baby to save us all. Remember from Luke 2.10, the angel said to them, Behold, I bring good, no- good tidings of great joy to all people. And thank God that's not the end of the story. So I have to ask, why a baby? Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 may reveal a part of the answer. It says, since the children have flesh and blood, it's us, since we have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered as he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. There's an ad campaign going on, and I I saw it again this morning. It took me a second to remember what it was. But it's these these images of of people that maybe are homeless or or have a a teen teen pregnancy, or, or there's a lot of stuff going on, and it says... Jesus knows you. Jesus knows us. He's been through this, you know. He lived a human life. Maybe not the exact problems you have, but he can certainly relate, and we can relate back. He knows us. God has a plan for Jesus, and it started with the answer to the prayer of God's people. Send us a Savior. Rescue us from ourselves, and he did. God's everlasting covenant, again, this word is barit olam, everlasting covenant, When this everlasting covenant is met with an ever-present problem, which is our sinful nature, it must be resolved with an eternal solution. That's our Savior. If God made this promise that can't be broken, yet we can't keep up our side of the the deal, then he has to provide a solution that is once and for all. And we know the mission of Jesus. We always hear it in John 3.16, but I always add 3.17. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It goes on, for God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, save the world. So beyond the manger, what the, the story of Christmas, the gift of Christmas doesn't end on December 25th. It includes today and tomorrow and the day after that. (coughs) Hebrews 10, 11 says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. Think about that. You know, we offer the same sacrifice. I'm sorry, we should repent, but we keep sinning. But it says, but when this priest, when Jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Stool For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That is paid. The debt is paid for all people. And those who believe that message, they get that full message. They get the full blessing. And that those who do not, that doesn't mean Jesus didn't come for him. He certainly did. And if you don't believe in God, that doesn't mean he's not real. It doesn't mean he doesn't believe you or believe in you or want a relationship with you. But you're missing out. 
on some opportunities for those blessings. And every minute you wait is another minute you could be living in a way of full blessing and recognizing it. But fortunately, that wasn't, again, the end of the story with the birth of Jesus. Now, there's a period of time where we don't hear much about him. He had to flee to hide, you know, uh, Mary and Joseph had to, to flee to protect him. And when, when they were able to return, they, uh, they came back. We don't hear much about the young life of Jesus until he's about the age of 12 when he's taken to the temple uh, for Passover. And, and we hear him um, speak and he reads from the Holy Scrolls and it's kind of revealed that this, this is the Messiah. And then not much again until he's about 30 years old. But at that age, very intensely and intentionally, for about three years, he preached and he taught and he discipled and he grew and he shared the message and it culminated, didn't end, but it culminated in the sacrifice that paved the way for our salvation. Three years of intentionality. And next year, and which starts very soon, next year, it is the mission of this church to be intentional. Intentional in our ministry, intentional in everything we do personally and as a congregation. We are going to do intentional Christianity. But for now, we need to redeem the gift of the manger and the promise of the cross. We turn to God for help. We say, Lord, I can't do this on my own and I don't have to. We surrender our problems. We surrender our worries and we trust him, even if it means doing something ridiculous. Well, what does that mean? Maybe it's something uncomfortable. Maybe it's, it's uncomfortable to say, God, I messed up in this way. That's uncomfortable. Maybe it's talking to someone about our faith, whether it's prompted or not. Maybe it's to give more time, more money, more attention, more devotion. Maybe it's to do something ridiculous and unthinkable. Jesus spoke to tax collectors. Jesus talked to prostitutes and adulteresses. Jesus talked to the lepers. Now, I'm not saying that literal, but maybe there's something that we need to do outside of our comfort zone. God, you want me to do what? You want me to go talk to who? You want me to, to do what? You want me to serve in what way? Love the unlovable. Believe the impossible and expect the miraculous. That is the message of Christmas. And it's always easy to remember these things as Christmas approaches, but, but realize that the ministry of Jesus is more than a day. And the hope of the sinner is still very much alive and active. I caught another one in Matthew West. He's a, he's a Christian singer and, and he's a storyteller by all accounts. And, and he recorded a song called, um, I think it's called The Day After Christmas. So would you share that? I just want you to hear the message of the song. Christmas is over Here comes the meltdown And there goes the cheer But before we have a breakdown Let us remember The light of the world is still here Happy day after Christmas And merry the rest of the year Even when Christmas is over 
summer, the Super Bowl's over, and I'll settle for spring. Well, sometimes we all need a change in the weather, but it won't change the reason we sing. Happy day after Christmas, day after Christmas and merry rest of the year. Even when Christmas is over, the light of the world is still here. Great message, great message. And if, if you weren't able to enjoy the Christmas that you had hoped for because there is something heavy on your heart, then I pray that God brings you that joy today if it wasn't yesterday. I pray that if you need to seek him, if you need to reconnect him, that you were able to do that. And if I can be a part of that, I would love to, to help you with that. So that invitation is always open to you or anyone. But let's make that our prayer as we close out the service. Father God, thank you for the wonderful, miraculous, and seemingly ridiculous gift of providing a baby to save us. But it worked. It absolutely worked. So God, we thank you for that wonderful gift. And we thank you that it's an eternal gift, a part of an eternal promise that you made to us long, long ago that you love us, you care for us, and you will never abandon us. You are with us wherever we go. And if we get off the path, we turn to you, we are fully restored. Lord, with a repentant heart, we come to you this morning and we say we are sorry for anything that we have done that is nailed to that cross with Jesus Christ. But Lord, we thank you for the redemptive power of that same cross. As we 
finish out this calendar year. Lord, let us use it as a reason to reignite our faith, to live intentionally, to worship intentionally, to give intentionally, to believe intentionally. Lord, I thank you. What an honor it is to be able to gather in a place like this and worship you. For those that we missed this year that have already redeemed that promise of life eternal, we thank you. Lord, we look forward to the peace and hope and joy that sits before us. God, it's in your son we name, or name we pray. Amen.